you're visiting, we are right in the middle of uh, the angel's visit to Mary. Um, generally, when I preach narrative, I go through chunks. But when it comes to the birth of Jesus Christ, you do want to slow down and look at the detail because there's so much in it. And so that's what we are doing. And then uh, next week, I finish with uh, the climax of the section. We are looking at Luke chapter 1 from verse 26 <clears throat> through to the end. Read with me. Are we good? In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her, this is the angel, and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be, the, he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with uh, with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Last week I said, Jesus came to redeem reveal, but also to reign in an eternal kingdom. We saw God's grace in the revelation of the message to Mary. That is in verse 26 through to verse 27. This week, we are going to zoom in on verse 31. Since it's Christmas and uh, I, I was going to give you a little gift by finishing early. And so, my sermon will probably not be a, an hour, because that's normal. Probably not. So, no promises. In the first part of um, this content that the angel reveals, remember I said to you last week, there's two parts of this visitation of the angel to Mary. There is the, um, the divine message that is given to her, and then there's the content of the divine message which follows that. So the divine message is in the arrival of the angel to Mary, and he, he sets the stage for giving the content. 
So we saw last week that he spoke with her, verse 26 through 230, and Mary was a bit surprised, needless to say. But in the content, there's two predictions that is made. You will conceive and you will call. These are the main clauses of the verse. That is verse 31. The, the substance of this verse is broken up into two things. You will conceive and you will call. And so we will look at that verse which deals with the fulfillment of the promise. The son of promise. You will conceive, you could probably write it out as a prediction of the means of the birth. And you will call, you could probably say that it means a prediction of the purpose of the birth. So that, those are the two components we will look at. Let me set the context especially for those who weren't here last week. We left off with Gabriel now having engaged Mary in verse 26. Uh, there's this descending, uh, cascading aspect that is in view from Luke's point of view. He speaks about in chapter 1 from verse 1 through to 25 about this mount that the angel visits, which is in Jerusalem where the temple is built. And in the mount, there is one of the most important people in the world at that time, which was the priest, not the king, the priest. Because he makes sacrifice and confession on behalf of the people before God. And so the angel comes and visits him, the man who's supposed to receive the word from God and then convey it to the people. But he doesn't receive the message. And as you follow Luke's argument in verse 26, he says that the same Gabriel comes to a city in Galilee, then goes down to a virgin who's betrothed to a man whose name is Joseph. There is a, uh, a cascading decline in importance. The angel now speaks with this woman named Mary. And what I find interesting is Mary's response. The angel speaks and greets her, and Mary's on the other side of this conversation, if you will say, standing there thinking, what kind of greeting is this? What on earth? This is so unusual that this angel will come and speak to me in this fashion. I said to you last week that Mary's just being a woman. She's getting words and focusing, zooming in on, hey, hey, hey. She forgets the fact that it's an angel. My goodness. Imagine being in Mary's shoes. I think, first of all, most of us would run away if there's an angel who appears out of nothing before you. Or, for instance, if the angel does speak to us, we would want to know a little bit where he's from, who, who he is, instead of, Wondering about the nature of his words. Not so with Mary. Words matter to her as with every other woman. Probably. Now while she's still trying to figure this out. The angel interjects. Look at verse 31. Behold. <laughs> that is called an interjection. Which means take note. It's also an imperative to Mary. 
He's grabbing her attention away from her wandering mind. She's distracted. Mary, pay attention. Behold. What the angel is about to say is the most dramatic statement in all of Scripture. You will conceive. And I will, I will show to you later on why that is the most significant statement made to a woman. In this verse, the angel reveals two predictions. Number one, you will conceive. This is predictive. This is telling a future event from the time of the angels um, speaking to her. But it is also promissory. That means it is a promise that God has made to you that you will conceive. This is not a potential statement, but a certainty of reality. It's going to happen. Understand that His promise is not independent of antecedent Revelation, that means revelation that has gone before, especially Genesis chapter 3.15. For the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The, the expectation of the Messiah's coming has been clearly laid out in the Old Testament. There's a chronology of prophetic literature that speaks about the coming Messiah. Isaiah chapter 7, 14, and a virgin will be with child. However, up to this stage, it was not fully clear what God meant. Because up to the stage, everyone was looking for that moment. What does it mean that the Messiah will come? Who is this Messiah? Who is this one that will reign and rule and redeem his people? Until the stage, the promised seed Revealed that it would be a man who would be born of a woman. And this man would be God. The seed would be a son. You find this in Genesis 3.15, Isaiah chapter 7 and Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. 7.15, You read them all together and you get the revelation of who this promised seed is. The seed will also redeem. And then he will reign. The angel Gabriel and Luke, based on his information that he probably received from Mary, he probably sat down with her and had a conversation on what did the angel say? Because this is how it is found in these pages of scripture. The angel Gabriel takes these two elements, that he will reign, he would be a man, and that he would have a kingdom Three elements. And brings them together in this revelation. Now the identity of the promised seed has never been revealed. Remember what Peter says? The prophets, they all looked into which one it would be when the revelation would take place. So this prediction adds to previous revelation. Now the time is revealed. It is at this time that the seed would come. Now the name is revealed because he's, he gives the name at the end of verse 31. And you shall call his name Jesus. Now the person through whom this promised seed will come is also revealed. It would be Mary. All of these 
bring together the fulfillment of the previous prophecies, but also add to those previous prophecies. There's a school of thought that prophecies in the Old Testament are not added to in the New Testament. That's not true. Clearly, yeah, it's been added to by the angel who's been sent by God. So what this means then, if you take all that into consideration, is that God has set a moment in history where a woman within the time span of history would receive a son in a womb who would be God and be born as a king and ruler into this world. That moment is being revealed to Mary. That is why this is the most awesome statement. That's not a word. That comes from the Lego movie. That there's just nothing to compare with it. This is the moment that the entire prior history of predictions and prophecy culminates in. This is the fulfillment of God's promise. You will conceive. I also want you to know in verse 31 that the you is singular. You alone will conceive. Now, for those of you who understand grammar, there's a difference between singular and plural, right? Singular means you, singular person, and plural means multiplicity, two and more. The you is different from in verse 13, for instance. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer, singular, has been heard, and your wife will bear you a son. The you there is singular, but it in, uh, involves both husband and wife. There, the normal processes of a marital relationship is in view. You will have a son through your wife, Elizabeth. Zechariah, like Abraham, was promised a son through a a particular woman. There are only three occasions that a promise is made to a woman apart from a man. You think of those three? Genesis 3, 15. The other one is Isaiah 7, 14. And the third one is this one. Come on. Luke chapter 1, verse 31, which is the corresponding verse in Matthew 1, 21, I believe. The emphatic nature of the statement, you will conceive, means you alone will have a conception in your womb. That is a shocking statement. Look at uh, verse 34. Notice her response to this. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Pause there. I think she understood exactly what he meant when he said, you by yourself will conceive in your womb. I think she got it. Because her question to him was, hang on. I'm not, never, and have never been with a man. How is this possible? Do you think Mary was thinking Isaiah 7, 14? Do you think she was probably getting in this, the promise of the Messiah? I think so. 
I will show you that this language is so close to Isaiah 14 that it is an unmistakable reality that both Mary and the angel thought the same thing. Now think about what is being said here. You will conceive in your womb. Let me break it down a little bit further. You, without the help of a man, will have a conception in your womb. This breaks science. This breaks biology. This is an impossible reality. This is not normal. The promise of a child is not unique to Mary. There's been quite a few in the pages of Scripture. The nearest one is actually in verse uh, 24. The, the similar words are um, used in chapter 124. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and uh, for five months she kept herself hidden. Thus, the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away reproach from among the people, my reproach from among the people. It was a slur on women to be barren. They, they, they looked on them with shame. But God promised her up in verse 12 through to 13 that she would bear a child. But that was through human intervention. She bore a child because of her husband, because he, Zechariah, says, I'm an old man. This is not possible. But this is significant out of all the prophecies uh, of a person who will have a child. This one says, you without the intervention of a man will have a child in your womb. Literally, the Greek says, there will be conception in your womb. Make sense of that. That's an impossibility. That breaks the laws of science and biology. In every natural relationship where a man goes uh, or is with a woman, in the biblical sense, knows a woman, there's production of a child. Yeah, this is not the case. What is meant by this word conception? The word literally means to bring together. You can see the biology in that, to, to bring together this two Seeds, one seed in a cell that comes together. That's literally the meaning of the word. There will be a bringing together in your womb. I was in a theology class once where a certain individual was trying to figure out the DNA of Jesus. I won't mention his name. But he was trying to figure out, did Jesus have a little bit of Mary or was it fully divine? The divine doesn't have DNA. God is what? Spirit. So what Jesus had was a human body and human DNA. Now, if he had the DNA of Mary, it's possible. Notice what the text says. And you, verse 31, will conceive in your womb, or literally, you will have a conception in your womb. Whose womb is it? Mary's womb. It's her DNA that Jesus would be born from. So I'm not saying that that is the answer. I'm just saying that it is possible that Jesus had Mary's DNA. 
But look at the next line. So this impossible conception taking place in a womb, notice what it says, and bear a son. Now this word can mean one of two things. To birth, that is to literally give birth to a son, or to carry a son. And most people take it that it means to give birth. In the Greek, there's a, quite a number of different ways to speak of the birthing process. And generally, the context will tell you what that is or, or, or what is in view. I don't normally use Greek words. I'm going to use it now just to illustrate how this word is slightly different. When um, a person has been born, the word genesis is used, meaning to be born, or he has been born. The a variation of that is genetos. The child was born or has been born. This is not that, though. This word is tiptoe. You know, like tiptoe? Just put a K in there. Tiptoe. It's a nice word. It means to bear, to carry, or to carry a child. To birth a child. As I said, often it is just translated as birth or bear. But that's a little bit ambiguous. Listen to the context and maybe you can figure out what is in view. And you will have a conception in your womb bearing a son. What do you think is in view? The birth or the carrying? The carrying. That is what the angel is saying to her. You will carry a son in your womb. I'm going to pause there. Let that settle. You will carry a son. There's going to be a conception. And in that conception, there will be a what? Son. For those of you Christians who are struggling with abortion. Those of you who are saying, there's no verse that says that uh, uh, um, life begins at conception. What is the angel called Jesus? In the conception period, a son. He's a person. And I know that it's a technical term in the medical um, language, this, this word fetus. But it... Some use that word to um, speak of a lump of cells that has got no mind, uh, no emotion, uh, no thoughts, no nothing. Just it's a lump of cells that come together. At what stage does this lump of cells actually become a person? Well, based on what the angel says, in, in your conception or in your conceiving, in your womb, there's a son. It's at that moment that the conception takes place that it's already determined whether it's a boy and a girl and God determined that Jesus would be a masculine boy before he was born. It wasn't assigned to him. He was born a son and a boy. So two things. Gabriel speaks of the conception in the womb and a person in that womb. There is no struggle in my mind with regards to abortion, it is murder. There is no struggle in my mind with what the angel means right here. The bearing of the son in the womb is not called a lump of cells, but a son. I digress. I'm going to move back to my sermon. 
Gabriel speaks the most shocking words a young virgin will ever hear. This will never happen again. You will conceive and bear a son. You in your unmarried, untouched state will have a coming together in your womb and that will be a son. Now, Keep your hand here and go over to Isaiah chapter 7. I'm not going to deal with the interpretive problem of who's in view with regards to um, a has. I dealt with that last year. So if you do want to listen to that sermon, you're welcome to do so. There are two references in view in this passage. The son of Ahaz, and then the son, who is the Messiah. In verse 14, because of the refusal of Ahaz to ask God for a promise or a blessing, God makes a promise independent of him, and he says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a son. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Hmm. Now, I'm going to read it from the Alex X because it's slightly different to the English translation from the Hebrew. And listen to it. This is what Mary would have known. Look, this is Isaiah 7. The maiden in her womb will have and bear a son. And you will call his name Emmanuel. The word look there is behold, which is exactly the same word used in Luke chapter 1. Same form, same word. The word maiden is replaced by the word virgin. But listen to this. En chastri, en chastri that is um, gastro. That is womb is exactly the same in Luke 1.31. The promise is future in um, the Alex X and will bear a son. The promise is being fulfilled in Luke 1 and you will bear a son exactly the same, same form of the word. And then he goes on to say, and you will call his name and that is exactly the same in Luke 1.31 and you will call his name. The only difference that you have is Emmanuel and Jesus. Why is that different though? So keep, your, keep that on a pause in your mind. The names are different. I'll get back to that in a moment's time. Are there similarities? Absolutely. Exact phrases used in both Alex X and in Luke chapter 1. What Gabriel is doing, or I should say what Luke is writing, is a direct quote being fulfilled in Luke 1. From Isaiah chapter 7, 14. The only difference is that Jesus replaces Emmanuel. Now, taking that into consideration, the prophecy made in Isaiah is being fulfilled with Mary. The only difference is the one is in the third person and the other one is in the second person. One speaks about Mary and the other one speaks to Mary. So what we have here is God's prophetic voice of what will take place in Isaiah and God fulfilling that very thing 
in Luke. Turn the page over to Isaiah chapter 9. Look at the end of verse 7. But I'm going to read from verse 6. The same promise is given just in elaboration now. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. The interesting thing here, in the Hebrew language there are no um, tenses. So future tense, present tense. Um, whether it's predictive depends on who writes it and the context in which he writes it. This is a prophecy. So let me read it to you as prophecy. For a child will be born to us. And a son will be given to us. Notice how it changes in verse the middle of verse 6. Because it's prophetical. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. That is right. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Future. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and upon it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth, the time that this prophecy is being fulfilled. And forevermore, look at this last line, the zeal of Yahweh fulfills it or will do this or will accomplish it. What does that mean? The only one who's going to bring this about is who? God. God brings this about by himself. The giving of the son, the birthing of the son, the reigning of the son, the redeeming work of the son is brought about by God himself. And that's the point. God alone does this. Now back to Luke chapter 1. The divine work being brought about in the womb of Mary, in your, son, in your womb there will be a conception and the bearing of a son is done by God. God suspends the processes of normal life. He pauses the fabric of time and eternity upon this moment. The immediate conception of Jesus in the womb. It's as if God took his hand and placed Jesus in the womb of Mary. Listen to this Greek word again, in the gastre of Mary. If you ask a child, where, where's, where's mommy's baby? It's in, in mommy's belly. That's normally what kids say, because it looks like it's in the belly, right? That's actually what it means. In the gastro of Mary. In the belly of Mary. Now, it doesn't mean that the baby was born in the belly. It's just a way to explain where it is in relation to the body. But literally, womb is in view. Now look at verse 35. Mary's response to him, 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be? That is significant because Mary understood the reality that, listen, what you're talking about is impossible. There is no way I can give birth because I have not been with a man. Valid question. How will this be? Let me just pause here. Remember I said to you last week that um, Zachariah's question is different to Mary's question. I never actually dealt with it. I said to you I will get back to it later. I meant this week. So 
Let me deal with that. He says, look at verse 18. And Zechariah said, uh, said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am old and my wife is advanced in years. It sounds the same, right? But it's not exactly the same. Literally what he's saying is, In accordance with what will I know this? What evidence is there? that I may, may be able to know this. He uses a, a, a cognitive word that deals with the mind, but can also deal with belief. I know better. I know my condition. This is impossible, is what he's saying. Now listen through to, to Mary. After hearing this, Mary says to him, how will this come about? How will this be? How will this happen, is what she's asking. Just imagine the angel talking to Mary. I can see her head nodding. Yeah, okay, okay. Hey, hey, wait, 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 wait. Just explain that for a moment. How will this be since I am a virgin? That is what she's saying. Don't, don't move on until you explain how it is possible since you know what I am. She's not saying, listen, I, I don't believe you. She's saying, just explain a little bit more. And the angel responds to that. A valid question. So he says to her in 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Almighty will overshadow you. That word overshadow is to preserve, to protect, or literally to come over. Whichever way you translate it, it gives the same idea that God is involved in the production of the birth. Of Jesus Christ. In other words, this is going to be a divine work, Mary. There's nobody involved here. It is God, the Holy Spirit. The power of the Most High will come upon you, will come over you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of the Most High. In other words, you're not going to have a child in the normal way. This is a unique moment for you and for the entire world. Mary's words are different because she did not disbelieve. She just wanted clarity. Zechariah, he disbelieved. He did not even ask for clarity. It is interesting though in verse 18 that look at what the, the angel says to, to Zechariah after his question. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Why do you think he's saying that to him? Because of who he is. He is a man of God in the temple of God who's supposed to receive the words of God. And so Gabriel's response is, Huh? I'm Gabriel? A man, I stand in the, in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you. And you don't believe me. To bring to you this good news. Now last week, I said to you that this good news probably relates to the gospel because he's the forerunner. I don't think that is actually 100% accurate. Notice what he says. I bring to you, notice the demonstrative pronoun, this good news. What is this good news? You're going to be a child. That is the good news, not the good news. So if the good news here is identified as her being able to bear a child. So forgive me if I was wrong last week concerning that point. Anyway, 
what the angel is saying to Mary is that this is a unique moment. God is involved in this process. Mary just wasn't too clear on the details, and that's why she asked for clarity. God is accomplishing this work. Remember Isaiah 9, verse 7? Is it verse 7? Verse 7, at the end of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish it. God is fulfilling that promise now. So the first promise prediction is the miraculous conception that will take place in Mary's womb. The second prediction is the name that the son would be called by. Notice what it says. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. So there are two main clauses. You will conceive and you will call his name. Those are the two main, and both of them are future predictive. I take it as predictive promissory, meaning that it will come uh, about, not just predictive without a, a chance of fulfillment. It is promissory, so it will happen. So both the conception of the child and the naming of the child is prophesied. So now, this relates to the question that I had earlier on. Why is the name different? Remember Isaiah 7:14, and you shall call his name what? Emmanuel. But here, the angel says, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why the difference? Is this a textual variant? Is there a mistake? Did Luke not understand Mary? Or was the angel wrong? Is the angel adding to what God has previously said? No, not, not really. He actually is adding, but not with regards to the name. What is happening here is correspondent replacement. I'm going to explain what that means. It sounds like a very technical word. Correspondent replacement is when New Testament writers are writing about what Old Testament authors are thinking or writing about. So they are quoting them. And instead of writing word for word, they take a word that makes a lot more sense in the context that they are in and replaces that word, which is written in the Old Testament Hebrew or in the Alex X, with this new word. But it's got a correspondence. It's got similar meaning. So that is what Gabriel is doing, but a heightened degree of correspondent replacement. Now take note what he's doing. Go over to Matthew chapter 1. So go back to Matthew chapter 1. And you'll see that a little bit clearer in this passage. I think it's verse, it is verse 21. The same prophecy is being made to Joseph at this stage. Speaking about Mary, he says, She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Now look at what he says. For he will save his people from their sin. Hmm. Here the reason why Jesus was chosen is given. Because Yeshua, or Joshua, means Yahweh saves. Luke doesn't explain that because he's writing to a different audience. But Matthew has to explain it to the Jewish audience because when they read these words, and you shall bear a son and call his name, what is the next word they're going to think of? Emmanuel. 
And so Matthew replaces it with Jesus because he too understands, I should say the angel replaces it with the name Jesus because he too understands what is in view. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet who? Isaiah. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they, this is the people of the time that will um, receive the son, shall call his name what? Hang on, what is his name? Is it Emmanuel or Jesus? No, what Matthew is doing is showing the divine correspondence. The person Jesus is also Emmanuel, and whoever Emmanuel is, is Jesus. So when Luke replaces Jesus uh, with uh, um, Emmanuel, with Jesus, what he's saying is that the prophecy was about Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And I'm saying that that person, God with us, is actually who? Jesus. So what he's just revealed is the majesty of God's specificity to one moment in history. Isaiah 7, there's going to be a, a child that will be born. And Isaiah 9, this child will be a man and he's going to reign over this world. Luke chapter 1, Mary, this child is Jesus and he's going to be born from your womb. Sure. That is amazing. What God does in history is he proves his existence by fulfilling prophecy. Now, if you missed all that, go back and listen to the sermon again. This is huge. The reason Jesus is mentioned is because he is the one that will save his people. The birth of Jesus is significant because he's given as a savior to the world. It is exactly the same as what Matthew is saying in Luke chapter 1. But Luke doesn't take the time to explain it. So you find this divine uh, uh, correspondent replacement in Luke where he says, and you shall call his name Jesus. Mary is probably thinking, uh, you made a mistake. It's actually Emmanuel, but what, what Luke and what Gabriel understands is that Jesus is the fulfillment of Emmanuel, and that is in view. Jesus is this fulfillment. The purpose of this prediction is to demonstrate that there is one Savior, and it is Jesus. What a message. Look at how Mary responds. I think Mary understood that there were salvific and eternal implications for what the angel said to her. Verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he, this is God, has looked on the humble, that is her, on, on the humble estate of his servant. And behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, or having been blessed by God. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Does that sound familiar? Didn't you sing that this morning? That is where the, this is where that comes from. Holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who... Fear him. That is a very important phrase, a clause. 
Who fears God? God's people. And she says that God's merciful, long-suffering and response to them is for those who fear Him. Mary's got a theology of salvation that a lot of people doesn't have. From generation to generation, He has shown strength with His arm and has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And there's this interaction between being low and being brought high, being low and being brought high in Mary's song. And it is throughout the book of Luke. In fact, he demonstrated that from the heights to the lowest person, the heights of the temple to the lowest person in um, Galilee. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel. In other words, he has provided for Israel in remembrance of his mercy. That is his gracious act towards her, that is Israel. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Wow. Mary has such deep theology. She understands what God is promising through the angel. There is now salvation for all generations. There is now hope for people who fear him and trust in him. Mary displays a deep understanding of God's faithfulness to his promise in providing the Messiah as Savior. She gets it. And I hope you get it as well, that Jesus is given as Savior of the world. And that is why he was born. The second element that God reveals about this person, Jesus, is that he's the one who will reign. Now, if you want to know more about that, you've got to come back next week. Let's pray. He who is mighty has done great things. Father, cause us to appreciate, cause us to understand, and cause us to welcome the majesty and the splendor and the grandeur of your grace demonstrated in the birth of Jesus Christ. For those who have not come to the cross to be saved, Lord, draw them on this special occasion. Save them for your glory. Magnify your name in the salvation of sinners. And for us who are believers, help us to appreciate Jesus Christ. Help us to, to revel in the fact that you have in history revealed the person of your son, Jesus, who is Emmanuel, which means you came to dwell on earth. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, for a moment that we can remember the birth of Jesus and rejoice in who he is, that as our Savior, we are able to call upon him and agree with Mary, my soul, rejoice in God, my Savior. Giving thanks to you, for your name we pray. Amen. Oh, President, President.